0: Okay, so welcome, welcome to this week's Parsha class, and the Parsha is called Shlach, Send. And it's called Send because this Torah portion begins with the Jewish people sending spies to check out Israel. So interesting, but the actual word of of, um, the Torah is not Lirakel, which means to spy, but rather it means mm-hmm. lasur, lasur yasuru es eretz kanan. Yasuru is the word that's used today for touring, latur. And basically, we're going to talk about a couple of things here about the spies. Um, let's start from the beginning. So the first question we want to talk about is the words shlach lecha anashim. That's what the verse says. God told Moses, Shlachsen lecha literally means to you. Another interpretation is for your sake. Anashim men, and normally when Hashem says that, when God tells that in the verse, so the commentaries want to understand what does that mean. For example, um, God told Abraham lech lecha. He didn't say lech. He said lech lecha. Go to you. So over there Rashi says bishvilcha. Lecha over there means for your sake. Um, But what does it mean here? Shlach lecha. Send to you or for you, Anashim men. Why would Moses, why would it be for Moses? So here Rashi tells us a different interpretation. Shlach lecha. Send to you, for you. Le daatcha literally means according to your understanding. And Rashi elaborates and he tells us that God told Moses, I am not commanding you to send spies. Quite the contrary. I told you that it's a good land and the Jewish people should have faith in me. Why do you want to see the land first? And not only that, but actually God tells Moses that I am going to make sure that because they don't believe me, they wanna go through the natural channels of let's check it out, let's see, let's, let's send the spies. And therefore God says, okay, you wanna go natural ways? Then according to the laws of nature, there is always two ways to inter- in, interpret things. So I will do things in a way that they will question and have their own interpretation and as we'll soon tell the story how we see that the spies had a wrong interpretation to what god was doing while they were spying the land of israel okay now with this being said let's return to that word lecha send for you which rashi now tells us means according to your mind I am not telling you to do this. You want to do it. I'm not going to st- stop you. And obviously, the commentaries question, what is going on here? Moses, the loyal servant of God, the one upon who God said, "Neman bechalbasi." He said, beisi, who he who is he is trusted in all of my house. And all of a sudden, Moses doesn't get the hint. God said that I. Am not suggesting that you do this. And what happens then? He doesn't say, he doesn't tell the Jewish people, "Uh, I spoke to God, he's okay if we do this, but he didn't sound excited about it. I think we shouldn't do this. Why did he allow the plan to go through once he hears that God is not happy, and not only is God saying that he's not happy, he's gonna open up the door for misinterpretation, which would lead to a mistake. So that's the question here on the table, why did Moses move forward once God told him that he is not in favor of this, but he won't get in the way? So some commentaries say that Moses was kind of in a pickle, because if he wouldn't have discussed it with the Jewish people, and he would have right away said, no, there's no reason for this, God told you it's good. Okay, And the Jews are saying, "Okay, Moses is telling us to have faith and trust and don't question. But now that Moses entertained the thought and Moses brought it to God and the Jewish people knew that he brought it to God. And then he comes back and he says, no, all of a sudden this looks like, you know, kind of like a car dealer coming back and saying, well, you know, uh, we really can't let you take this car for a test drive. And all of a sudden the Jews are, oh, what's going on here? What are we hiding? So therefore, some commentaries say Moses was in a predicament where it wouldn't have come across right if God said, I'm allowing you to do this, even though I'm not in favor of it. And Moses discussed with the Jewish people, embraced the idea to all of a sudden start you know, backing out of it. However, I want to share with you a most amazing interpretation of the rebbe of blessed and saintly memory the rebbe has an entire different twist to the word Leda'atcha. Leda'atcha, we said means that god is telling moses your if you feel that you should do it Leda'atcha, yours moses in this interpretation, the Rebbe says, no, that's not what God was telling Moses, that it according to your understanding, if you want to do it, then do it, but I'm not in favor of it. But rather, according to this interpretation of the Rebbe, which is really so amazing and so practical in what it teaches us, God was telling Moses, Moses, you should send the spies. Why should you send the spies? Because the Da'atcha, as a teacher, as a leader, you need to help your people love the land in accordance to their understanding. If we impose upon them, this is the chosen land and you will love the land, then they'll never develop their own opinion their own love. It'll always be, oh, we were told we have to love the land, so we're going to love the land. Rather, God is telling Moses, no, a true leader, a true teacher, a true parent is not afraid of the student, follower, um, child, offspring, developing their own opinion. Now the problem is that as parents, we so often watch our children developing their own opinion, and they take a painful detour on the way. And we think to ourselves, we can save our child so much pain if we don't allow this to go that way. Hence, let us make the decision and save them the pain. On top of that, God tells Moses, for them to develop a love for the land of Israel, then I need to work in their terms, which means I need to allow for different interpretations of what's happening. If I am going to turn Israel into a magical perfection, Then once again, their land won't be, their love won't be for the land of Israel as is. It will be for the magical Israel, which I have, so to speak, seduced them with. So God tells Moses, yes, we're going to go through this the long way. We're not going to perform miracles. We're going to allow them to see the land of Israel through their eyes. And through their eyes means they're not going to see the spiritual perfection. They're going to see the struggles, the possibilities of failure, the risks, the ups and the downs. And they may not want it. And because of that, they're going to be punished. And it's going to take an entire generation of 40 years wandering in the desert But, Moses, what other option do we have? That's what God is telling Moses according to the Rebbe's interpretation. What God is saying is, allow them to do it their way, knowing that they're going to trip and fall, get up, try again, and develop. This, what God is telling Moses is, that the only alternative is that we will impose upon them love or we will create magical Israel for them to love. And hence, the outcome will be that they will never have their own love for Israel. For the good, the sweet, the bad, the bitter, the whole package as is. And that's how we see the story, and that's the first lesson that we have here. Now, parenthetically speaking, I want to share with you that this teaching of the Rebbe follows the Rebbe's entire approach to the purpose of creation. So, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe of Shnei Zalman of Liadi in Tanya when he discusses the reason why God created the world, the purpose of creation, the mission of life, he leans on a medrash, a homiletical teaching in a medrash called medrash tanchuma. That's the name of that medrash. There's different types of homiletical teachings. This one is called medrash tanchuma. And in that medrash, it says that God created the world, Because Nisabaloi, God desired that there should be, that we should make for him a Dira Petachtonim, a dwelling place in the lowest nether worlds. In other words, God did not desire to have a dwelling place in the spiritual worlds, in the spiritual realms, in the realms of angels and so forth and so on, and emanations. Rather, God desired to have a dwelling place right here in this world that has the potential to be a jungle or the potential to be a garden, God's garden. And that is the teaching of the Medishtan Chuma and that is the teaching upon which the Alter Rebbe bases the entire approach to the purpose of life. Our purpose of life is that we should live in a physical world, in an imperfect world, in an imperfect body, with an imperfect character. And over there, we should work diligently on having this world and our physical characteristics to all become a dwelling place for God. Dira betachtonim. And the simple understanding as explained in great length, depth, and width and marvelously so in the teachings of Hasidus is based upon the concept that for God, perfection is without value. What is valuable to God, what is precious and cherished to God is not perfection, but that we struggle with freedom of choice. And we literally go against the grain of our egocentric DNA to go ahead and create an imperfect yet precious realm, abode for God. To put this into perspective of An analogy that the God, uh, that, uh, that the Rebbe of blessed memory gave someone in Yechidus of why God chose this. The Rebbe asked him a question. The Rebbe asked him what was his hobby. He said his hobby was photography and art. And the Rebbe asked him, so tell me, a photo picture is perfect without any mistakes, a painting, as perfect as it will be, it will always be imperfect. So why is it that a painting costs so much more than a picture? And the person responded to the Rebbe because the picture is, it's perfect because it's just mechanically so. The lens opens, shuts, gets a perfect imprint, And that's it. However, a painting, a painting is man-made, and it's so difficult, and therefore it's so precious. And the Rebbe went on to say, and now you understand why God desires our imperfect, our totally imperfect, blemished world, and our blemished service to God, rather than the angelic, mechanical, lack of freedom of choice of an angel Perfect service to God. Now, that is the teaching as is. Now I want to share with you that the Rebbe takes this teaching of the Altar Rebbe and of the Medrash Tanchuma to a total new level. And that's what connects to what God was telling Moses here in the Torah portion, according to the Rebbe's teaching, Mm Leda'atcha, that We have to let them work it out in according to their imperfect psychology, in their imperfect approach to things. Because what's important is not that there be an imposition of divinity upon the arrogance and imperfection and self-centeredness of the physical realm. Rather, the Rebbe adds on two words, three words, actually. When it says there should be a dwelling place, bitachtonim, in the lower nether physical world, the Rebbe adds on the words, al yedei hatachtonim, through the tachtonim, through the nether world. In other words, not only did the God choose the geographic location, location for his place but rather God chose who would be the only builders contractors of his home that it should be the imperfect human making out of his imperfect self in his imperfect way leading to the imperfect finished product that is what God desires now let's go back to what we're being taught here Moses, I don't want you to impose upon the people a perfect love for a perfect land, but rather I want you to allow the imperfect people to work through an imperfect love for their perception of an imperfect land, even though it's going to cause so much pain and so much lun- a long distance until it'll actually happen 40 years. Okay, so now you have another whole perspective to the story of how the Jewish people didn't immediately digest that they want Israel and how according to this teaching, it was okay. Yes, you want to do it your way. We're going to have to work it out your way and it's going to be painful, God says to us. However, that's what it's all about. It would be meaningless to me if you didn't go about it your way. Okay. So another thing is that, and this is discussed by many commentaries. I've actually was standing by for bringing where the Rebbe discussed this. There seems to be within Rashi itself a paradox. So Moses chose the twelve spies. Amongst them was his brother-in-law. Caleb, the son of Yefunah, from the tribe of Judah. Also his prime disciple, Joshua, who would be his successor from the tribe of Ephraim. And then he picked out another 10 leaders, one from each of the other 10 tribes. Now, obviously, if Moses is going to pick them, Moses is going to pick the people most befitting and most trustworthy of the tribe, of, of the job. On top of that, we find so interestingly enough that the, the people are called, when Moses chooses them, they're called Anashim, which is the Torah terminology for man of men of great stature. So here we see that Rashi tells us that at this point there were still good people. Yet later on, Rashi tells us When from a different unique wording of the verse that the Torah is telling us that they're going and returning was with the same mindset. That they went with bad intentions and they returned with bad intentions. So Rashi, make up your mind. Were they still okay people or not? Now, there's different ways of handling this. As I told you, the Rebbe spoke about it, commentaries speak about it. One of the ways of simply handling it is that when Moses chose them, they were good people. But once they put themselves to a plan on what they're going to do, that already was them coming up with not such holy devices. Now, parenthetically speaking, you know, I was just recently, actually one, one week ago, uh, one week ago, Tuesday, I was in a, a, an interesting Zoom meeting. And one of the people there worked for, um, you know, was a, was a newscaster. And she went on to say how she left um, that job. And she said something very interesting. She told an interesting story of why she left the job. So she was sent to go ahead and, and, you know, write about a certain event. And she went to that event, and she said that her husband happened to come along this time on that event. And then later when her husband reads the article, he turns to his wife and says, this is not what took place there. And she laughed, and she said, don't you understand? What took place at the event was already decided the morning before the event took place in the in the newsroom that's when was decided what took place at the event and then later it just had to be written and pictures had to be taken and she said that at that time was when news really changed all of a sudden the news writers had slogans um, such as if it bleeds it leads and so it, it wasn't no more about the news it was about the ratings I'm sharing that with you because how interesting that I heard that just prior to once again reading this story. The leaders, because of their loyalty to their people, the Jewish people, they were already having a meeting when they were going to Israel on how this is going to go down. So even though when Moses chose them, they were kosher people. That's the word Rashi uses, it was still kosher. But once they were going to Israel, they were already putting themselves into their job in which they were entrusted. They already were having evil plotting. Now to understand this, I will share with you yet another teaching that I was fortunate enough to learn from the Rebbe. And that was one of the things I started off with. We refer to them as the miraglim, the spies. A spy's job is liragel, to spy. However, that's not what Moses told them. Moses told them latur, to tour the land, to explore the land. And by the way, one teaching I heard from the Rebbe once, that Moses would never tell them liragel to spy, because spying is the job of being less than transparent and truthful. Moses was all about the truth. The job of a spy is to make it look like I'm your friend, getting information, when really I'm not your friend. I'm really working for the enemy. Moses would have never told the Jews any of the Jews to do that, especially since Moses saw no reason for it. What do we have to worry? We don't need to spy. We can be transparent. This is not our war. This is God's war. We have nothing to worry about. But nevertheless, the spies didn't hear what Moses was telling them. He didn't hear Moses sending them to explore the land, but rather they heard Moses tell them to come back with a decision about the land. Hence, from the very onset, they were not loyal to their mission interesting but you know I was very fortunate and blessed thanks to the Behar family Sabi and Rosie Behar that I was able to participate in quite a few um the Jewish Federation of Miami's uh, missions to Israel and you know we would pretty much always have the same almost always have the same tour guides because that's the way it works you know these tour guides you know get get to know different federations and different federations get to like different tour guides and this was one guy a really nice guy and we ended up in that specific mission that i talked to you about we ended up going to masada and he gave the whole history of Masada and what happened and what, and what went on and the whole story from A to Z and then um, the, the suicide that they committed rather than to, uh, to deal with, you know, and the, the whole story. And then he gives his opinion on the story. According to his opinion, Rabbi Akiva was, uh, did, did this wrong and Rabbi Akiva did this one wrong and, and the whole story. And then he finishes smiling at me. We got along very well, him and I, really year after year. And he smiles and he says, and I'm sure the rabbi has a different opinion to state on the whole story. And he pretty much leads into that everyone should now turn to me and hear my story, my opinion. And I said to him, I'm not going to mention his name. I really like him. And he, I just said to him, I only have one comment on everything. Why is it that in every other country in the world, tour guides give history, not opinions? And in our cherished, loved land of our cherished people with our cherished tour guides, we get more opinions than we get historical facts. Moses was asking, come back with the facts, give us a picture of the land, not an opinion. The Jewish people, the despise, the 10 spies come back and they begin their report with a picture of the land. And then they could not refrain themselves, constrain themselves, and they had to go on to give an opinion. FS, we will not be able to conquer the land. So here you're hearing where from the very onset, they once they put themselves into the job, they misunderstood their story. You know, it's interesting, um, you know, you hear from me, often I refer back to addiction recovery. One of the, the traditions that there's 12 steps and there's 12 traditions, one of the 12 traditions is that it's very fundamental that in groups there is no one that governs the group but for the conscious, but for a loving God through the conscious of a group conscious. So every decision has to be made, not by any individuals, but by a group discussion, a group decision with a prayer that we be open to God in our consciousness that the decisions be made in alignment with God's will. Why am I sharing this with you? Because we definitely have people doing service. There's a chairperson in a meeting. We definitely have all of this. But the minute one person slips from being of service to being of governing, we've lost the entire the entire meaning of what a recovery group is. So too, it should be with politics. I'm not going to go there. And definitely so too, it should be with religion, leadership, and definitely when Moses sends them to Israel to bring back the report. They were to be of service, not of governance, and not of opinion. Then what happens is that Joshua come, and, and when they hear what the what the other 10 spies are doing, Joshua and Kalev, they immediately break away and say, what are you saying? It's not true. We should have faith in God. If God tells us, we'll be able to make it, we'll be able to make it, so forth and so on. Um, I need to pause myself, and I'm watching the time. It's, it's getting late. We started a little late. There's a little problem with the Zoom, and I apologize for that, um, uh, but I want to just parenthetically tell you that Kalev in Israel breaks away from the group and he goes to Hebron to where our patriarchs and matriarchs are buried and he prays that he be protected. Interesting, very interesting. Kalev ben Yafuna was no pushover. Kalev ben Yafuna knew how to have an opinion, knew how to stand up for his opinion And nevertheless, he's already sensing what the others are looking to do, the other 10, not Joshua. And he prays to God, God, please, I'm going to need your help here. Interesting how that works. And then also interesting for those that wonder, why do we go to the burial site of holy people? Why do I continuously go to the burial site of the Rebbe? Uh, What is that all about? Um, So it's interesting that in this week's Torah portion is the first time that in the five books of Moses, we have already being told to us, Rashi tells us from the words that that Kalev knew that he was going to face something that may be beyond his own personal, personal self-reliance. He reaches out to those righteous ones who lived before him. And who were very learned in how to be strong and faithful and transparent to God, and asked them to please pray to God on their behalf and to connect with them, that they too be able to stand strong. Okay. With this being said, let's go back to the story. They go ahead and fight against the Jewish people, against the spies, saying to the Jewish people, "Don't listen to them. Lachmenu hem, there are bread." they respond, the spies are fighting back and they're saying, no, we shouldn't go. And they use a very interesting terminology. When we were there, we were like grasshoppers in our eyes compared to those giants. And so were we like grasshopper in, grasshoppers in their eyes. Interesting, what an interesting level. We don't get disrespected by other people. Rather, we project our own self-disrespect onto others in their paradigm of us. When other people disrespect us, what we need to question is not what they're doing, but what image of self are we projecting to them that brings forth their disrespect. I want to share with you something that in my studies of abuse I've learned something unbelievable there is no abuser who makes a mistake in who they choose as their victims you don't find abusers making the mistake of trying to abuse someone who's going to stand up to them and hurt them for doing that. Very interesting. The keenest, the keenest, what's the word I wanna use? The keenest um, talent of an abuser is to choose his victims correctly. Now, what that tells me is that of course the abuser is, 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 is guilty and needs to be punished for abusing But what that tells me is one of the deepest sayings we know in human psychology. Power is never taken. Power is only given. The trickery and the perversion of the abuser is he manipulates those who are already manipulable, if that's a word, into surrendering their power. Hence, it wasn't about how the giants that were living in that land saw the spies. It was how the spies saw themselves and then projected that, that image of self to the others. Okay? Now, and again, if I want to connect this itself with this whole story of faith and connection to God... When we see ourselves only as who we are, mortal human beings who from dust we have come and to the dust we shall return, a beginning and an end full of faults and fragility and weakness, then what option do we have but to see ourselves as grasshoppers? However, when we see ourselves as divine beings, of God, when we see ourselves as, to use the words that we say about Adam, the workmanship, the craftsmanship of the hands of God. So not only were we created by God, but we remain connected to God. Then the reason the kid in school doesn't see himself as so fragile, as so vulnerable, as so abusable is because he always says, my daddy's going to come and straighten this out. <clears throat> excuse me. So too, as a human being, <clears throat> again, excuse me, we're falling back on the process of addiction recovery. This whole notion of realizing that self-reliance is powerless and unmanageable, but rather (laughs) to have the connection to a higher power, and then not to just fold our arms and say, okay, it's not up to me, it's up to God, the higher power, but rather to know that the only reason we connect with our higher power is because the the higher power empowers us to be able to then do what we have to do. So Moses sends spies. Joshua leads a war. We don't just sit there and say, okay, God, get rid of this nation so we can come in and take care of this. No, we do what we have to do. But we don't do it as grasshoppers because we're not just human beings from dust to dust, fragile and vulnerable. But we are connected to our father, capital F. Hence, we'll never see ourselves as grasshoppers. Okay, moving right along here. Basically, the end of the story is that Moses and, and sees that God is, is extremely not happy with this. And Moses tells God, how long will it be that I am going to have this evil congregation? Parenthetically speaking, it's amazing that from these 10 evil spies, because Joshua and and Kalev, the righteous ones, are not counted in this. But when we want to know what the definition of a congregation is, how many people do we have to have to form a minion, we know that the number is 10. Why? Because we look through the entire Torah and we look for the smallest number of people, which is referred to as an Ada, congregation. And then we know that this is the smallest number that we can say is a congregation, a minion. Hence, because God says about these 10 people, how long will this evil congregation, there was only 10 of them, congregation, from here we learn out, that we have to have a minion men made up of 10 men so i just want to share with you the depth of this of the beauty of what's going on here we're using the opportunity of something negative to extrapolate something so powerful and beautiful because we know that every holy thing has to be done with a minion we know that our sages tell us that when you daven, you pray alone. It's questionable whether God will or won't answer. But when it comes to a minion, when we daven with a quorum, when we pray together as a congregation of ten, minimum ten, then we say that God is never disgusted and will always will always respond to us. And where do we learn this out from? from 10 people who are called an evil congregation. So even from the evil congregation, being that these are 10 Jews who are good people doing bad things, we're able to learn out the most powerful thing of what is the omnipotent power of prayer when we do it with a minyan, a quorum of 10. Okay, Um, Moses prays for God to praise to god yigdal no adnai please god make great and powerful even the lowest of your names adnai which interacts with the imperfection of humans allow your greatness to flow even into the way you relate with us imperfect and full of sins allow yourself to have your infinite compassion even manifest itself here and forgive them. And Moses succeeds in his prayer, and God says, I will not annihilate the people, but I will keep my word that those who spoke against the land will not get to see the land. The Jew despised, the they went and they spied, they took in the land for 40 days. God says, a day for a year, 40 years, we will wander in the desert until this generation dies out and it'll be their children that will go into the land now i want to share with you the logic behind this now we know that from the age of 13 a boy becomes an adult and is held accountable we know that from the age of 12 a girl is considered an adult and held accountable and this is on rabbinical matters on biblical matters it doesn't have to do so much with the age but with the maturity of the body, pubic hair, so forth and so on. Now, in we are taught that when it comes to the heavenly court, one is not held accountable until the age of twenty, and the mystical reason is because the twenty is the manifestation of the of the fulfillment. Excuse me, of our two intellectual forces, ten is the. Fullest potential of the intellect of wisdom, and ten is the fullest potential of the of the of the of the fullest fulfillment and uh, of the potential of the intellect of understanding. Hence, you have wisdom and understanding. Now we hold you uh, that you're mature, you're mature, and you're accountable. And as you know, we know today in science from our studies of the brain that the synaptic connections are not really solidified for a teen and that's why um, teens are such risk takers and don't understand the danger of risk because it isn't until we're after 20 where just the physiology of our brain becomes to a certain level of maturity and, and, and strengthen that we understand risk. Now following that thought, so no one under the age of 20 should be accountable for what just happened with the spies Now, we are taught that in the desert, everyone died at the age of 60. So if you spend 40 years wandering in the desert, at the end of 40 years, anyone who was at the age of 20 and is held accountable for joining in the rebellion of the spies will have already passed away, and hence you have a new generation coming into the land of Israel. I want to share with you... Just quickly, one more thought, and then we're going to turn to the, the, the theme that I'm going to talk about, which is the end of the Torah portion, talks about the laws of the prayer shawl, the tzitzit, the 4 cornered garment. I wanted to share with you that in between the story and that portion of the prayer shawl, we're taught about the laws of different sacrifices and different gifts that have to take place in Israel. And the verse begins... And it will be when you come to the land of Israel. Again, I want to just show what the difference between healthy parenting and education and unhealthy parenting and 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 education is. Rashi tells us that why does God begin the next commandment and it will be when you come to the land of Israel? Because already he was letting the Jewish people know, yes, you're going to wander for 40 years. yes. This generation is going to have to pass on, but you will get to Israel. So the minute the punishment was given and began, God is already telling them, don't worry, we're going to make it through this. I want to talk about what unhealthy parenting and unhealthy, unhealthy um, education control freaks do. What happens is that you take a punishment and you keep on leading to insecurity to have the other person be unsure of themselves and keep on mentioning about the not going into Israel. Always having them walking on eggshells Always having you in a place of position and them in a place of inferiority, anxiety, and, and afraid to voice their opinion. God's doing the exact opposite. I punished you with what I have to punish you. But now let's work on this relationship. Let's work on the healthiness of this relationship. Don't worry. You're going to get into Israel. I think that that's so important and so telling. And now let's get to this closing Torah portion, the part of this Torah portion, which is all about the tzitzit. So a four-cornered garment has to have the fringes at the end. Now, there is no commandment that you have to wear a four-cornered garment. So literally, you could spend all your life without ever having to biblically wear tzitzit. Just don't wear a four-cornered garment, and you'll never have to put on tzitzit. But if you're going to have a four-cornered garment, then you have to have the tzitzit on the four corners of the garment. Okay, number one, number two. The reason why women are not obligated to wear the tzitzit is because God in the Torah were taught. Our sages learn from the Torah that God is telling us that women are only obligated to not do any of the prohibitions and only obligated in the in the. Um, obligations that are not constrained in time. And our sages explain that because the woman is the foundation of the home, uh, number one, and number two, because they don't need this spiritual reminders and connection um, to remember who they really are as much as men do. So that's why they don't have them. Now, being that the Torah says "And you shall wear these tzitzis and you shall see them, we learn now from here that the time constraint of tzitzit is that you only have to wear it by day and not by night. Hence, we now have a positive commandment that has a time constraint. Hence, women do not have to wear tzitzit. Okay. Now, with this being said, our sages told us we should purposely wear a four-cornered garment and wear tzitzit. Maimonides tells us that if you have a mezuzah on your door, and you're wearing tzitzit, you'll always have reminders to keep you loyal and committed to God. Okay. Now, one more thing I want to share about this. So I wear tzitzit under my shirt. I have the tzitzit, um, you know, 24-7. Obviously, you don't take a shower with it, but we wear it also by night. Um, so you know that when we wake up and it's already daytime, we have it there, so forth and so on. Why do we wear the talid specifically by prayer? It has to do with a very beautiful teaching in the Talmud which is explained in Hasidus which is beyond what we're going to talk about now and that is that one who says the Shema without wearing the Tzitzit is giving false testimony upon himself. So somehow, for some reason, and again Hasidus explains it, but we're running out of time here, but there's a beautiful explanation what the connection with saying the Shema, hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, has to do with wearing specifically a talit, uh, a tzitzit, and not to say that without wearing tzitzit. Hence, we wear this by prayer. Okay, with this being said, I want to focus on something different. What is the mystical teaching of the talit and the tzitzit? More than that, the talit, we call it a talit, has nothing to do with the strings. It actually has to do with the garment. In Kabbalah, we call this the uniform of the king. Now the uniform of the king has to do with the entire shawl. So why do we have to have the fringes? Another thing is that if we do have the fringes, And one of the fringes, we don't have it today. Some people do it today. We purposely don't do it today because you're not supposed to wear fake ones and because it's better not to wear the blue string than to wear a blue string that isn't the right blue string made from the right dye. So we stay away from it. There are those that feel that they know which one it is. So they don't stay away from it. I'm sorry about that. So they wear it. Anyway, to make the long story short, if one blue string... Amongst another four, because the eight strings are four bent in half. So, if one blue string is is a good in each corner to say that the talit, the entire garment, is fit to be worn, then why does a garment that's made completely out of blue uh, blue um, wool have to have tzitzit Those are questions that are asked in Jewish mysticism. Why do we need the corners if the main thing is all about the garment? And even with the corners, if one blue string is enough to say that the whole garment is is wearable, then if the whole garment is made out of blue thread, why do you need tzitzit? So I wanted to share with you what is the mystical concept of talit. The mystical concept of talit is the lehit atef, to wrap ourselves in the talit. That means it's an all-encompassing surrender and dedication to God. And what that means is that we call that kabbalat ol, to accept the yoke of God. Before I get into the details of what God wants and what God doesn't want, I need to be willing to surrender my will for the will of God. So it's not going to be, okay, you know, someone asked me, um, can you do me a favor? I said, well, it depends. What do you want? We don't say that to God. To God, we said, ishma. we will do and we will hear. When God says, I want you to do something, we don't say, well, it depends. What is it you want me to do? No. The first thing is a total acceptance. God, what you want, I will do. End the story. And now let's work it out. So that's what the Talit represents. It's an all-encompassing, Surrender of will for the will of God. However, what we do know in relationships is that an all-encompassing surrender is everything and nothing at the same moment. Because if I can't take the all-encompassing surrender into a very specific detailed action To do it how God wants, as God wants, when God wants. If I don't have the specific detail, it's not just God, I'm willing to do whatever you want. No, what that means is God, I am willing to light the candles, to light the Shabbat candles the way you want me to do it. Not a minute later than it's supposed to be lit, because then it's no more a commandment, a good thing. It's actually a sin. It's desecrating the Shabbat. And I'm not going to make it about, oh, but I need to light the candles because it's just this loving feeling of when I cover my eyes and it makes the whole Shabbos table um, so beautiful. No, that's not what it's about. It's about doing it as God wants, how God wants, when God wants, and not doing it any other way. So a lot of times when we say, I surrender my will and I will do what you want, I mean it in the all-encompassing way. But do I mean that I will specifically do this for you when you ask me to do it, how you ask me to do it? I don't know that's the secret of the tzitzit the secret of the tzitzit is to have the all encompassing humility transparency surrender obedience to God be able to manifest itself in details it's as a man I say it's with a man is not just saying that of course I'll be here for you my wife no What it means is that I'm going to roll up my sleeves because she had a rough day today and I'm going to do the dishes for her. And I know that she has her OCD and how she wants the dishes to be done and how she wants it to be lined up. (laughs) You know, I saw a beautiful picture. How do you know when a man did the dishes? Because when you look in that plastic thing where you put the dishes to dry, by a man, it looks like just one big pile. <laughs> By a woman, it's lined up correctly. So what it means is that can I do for God the strings, the eight separated strings as it is, as, as he wants me to do it? And not just the all-encompassing, oh, whatever you want, honey. That's the secret of Chitit. People, thank you. Woof, we ran late. we're going to close it up.